Amen, and great to have you with us this morning. Good to have you with us live here in the service or online. Welcome to you who are live streaming, and uh, welcome to George and Amy again. So wonderful to see them live and in person. And uh, George will be sharing here uh, at the beginning of next month, sharing with us in a service about the ministry there in the Philippines. I look forward to that, all that God's doing uh, there. We'll take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Revelation. We're in our study through the book of Revelation on Sunday mornings, and we are in chapter 12, chapter 12 of Revelation. You find in this passage, uh, beginning here, what has been called a list of prominent persons. But before we get into that, that's the title of our message today, Prominent Persons. We find that chapter 12 is another uh, parenthetical. You remember last week at the end of chapter 11, uh, we saw the description of the sounding of the seventh trumpet. And with the sounding of the seventh trumpet, uh, John described the kingdom of Christ as being very near, meaning uh, the only thing that remained to happen uh, would be the seven bowl judgments, which would happen with intensity and uh, very quickly with brevity. So uh, the kingdom is in view, if you will. With the sounding of the seventh trumpet, the kingdom of Christ is in view. And of course, all of heaven rejoice, the voices from heaven and all who are saved rejoice in that. I shared with you last week uh, in my prayer time in the mornings, I often pray for Christ to rapture the church today. Uh, I prayed that this morning, so maybe the Lord will answer that today and we'll be raptured. Uh, but with the rapture would also come uh, the kingdom of Christ, the tribulation, and I pray for the kingdom of Christ to come. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I watch the news, the world's in trouble. The world's in trouble. Sin uh, has uh, Sin has inundated every every part of life, and Jesus is the only one that can fix that. And so I pray for him to come. But in this parenthetical, beginning in chapter 12, now you'll remember parentheticals are a pause in the chronology of the story of the revelation, meaning John's seeing the vision and God's giving him the revelation, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen in order. Uh, but a parenthetical is a pause in that chronology for the filling in of detail, if you will. Uh, this parentheticals long. It's chapters 12, 13, and 14. We won't pick up again with the chronology until chapter 15. But in this parenthetical, we learn a lot of good stuff. Really, in this parenthetical, we could, we could title this entire parenthetical a cosmic conflict. It takes us back to Satan's rebellion and, and, and how that happened in heaven and, and the cause of that. And really, throughout uh, human history, Satan being a created being, fell from his place in heaven of service as an angel uh, because of pride. He wanted to be like God. And since that time, he has purposely tried to thwart the plan of God. He's purposely tried to ruin what God created to be good. Uh, and, of course, we picked that up in human history in the Garden of Eden with the creation of Adam and Eve. So this parenthetical gives us these prominent people, uh, really players, if you will, uh, personages of this of this cosmic conflict between good and evil, between uh, Satan and God as he rebelled. And we pick up this parenthetical beginning in the first two verses. We're introduced to uh, what John describes as a woman here who is uh, uh, in pregnant and in labor. Notice what he says in verses 1 and 2. Now a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a, a garland of twelve stars. Verse 2, then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. Now this vision and this woman is not a literal woman like you would find somebody in the Bible and go, well, that's Mary or Esther or that's a person. 
what we find here in this vision is John is using a symbolic or metaphorical language to describe a literal event, to describe something literal. Uh, we find that in the Bible. Now, here's the danger. When you come across symbolism or metaphors in the Bible, listen to me very carefully here. That's not a free pass to just let your imagination run wild and make it say anything you want it to say, okay? Uh, God used metaphors and symbolism in the Bible much as we do in human language today. We might, we, we might have a conversation, and I might describe something to you, and then I'll use an illustration and say, well, to help you understand better, I will use an illustration. God does the same thing in the Bible. How then do we understand uh, symbols or metaphors in the Bible? Well, we understand them from the Bible. I've, I've always taught you over the years that the Bible is the best tool for interpreting the Bible. Everybody understand that? Meaning when you read a passage, and there are many passages in the Bible that will cause you to scratch your head. They're difficult. You have to dig into them. And you think, well, where can I figure out what this means? In the rest of the Bible is the answer, okay? God uh, speaks with unity through the Scriptures. Everybody understand that? There, there's no errors in there. It doesn't contradict itself. So when we come to this vision that John sees here, he sees a woman in heaven who is uh, uh, with child and in labor pains. Who does this woman represent is who we would begin to say, well, what does this vision mean? And what you'll see from the text is this woman represents Israel. This woman is, is, a, is a, a symbol of the nation of Israel. You say, well, where do you get that from? From the Bible. In fact, the description of this woman that John gives in this vision is very similar to Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. If you've ever read the Bible, you will remember that story. Let me, let me refresh your memory very quickly from Genesis 37, verses 9 to 11. You remember Joseph was God's man. God was going to use Joseph in a great way. And Joseph is having some dreams and those dreams, again, are about Israel, about his people. Listen to the dream in Genesis 37, verse 9. And he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream, and this time, listen, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Now, I don't have time, but you remember the story. Joseph was not liked by his brothers. In fact, they despised him. He was his dad's favorite. And so he keeps having these dreams, telling his brothers, Hey, all you guys are going to bow down to me one day. Well, that just made their animosity worse. But that's what he sees in this dream. Listen, verse 10. So he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, listen to this. What is the dream that you've dreamed? Listen, shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Listen, in Joseph's dream, his father Jacob is the sun. His mother Rachel is the moon. His 11 brothers are the stars, he making 12, which are the tribes of Israel. So when we get over here to the book of Revelation, and John has this vision of a woman who, who is the sun, has the sun and the moon under her feet and the 11 stars, it's Israel. The vision is, is John is seeing Israel in, listen, not just the nation in itself, but the redeemed part of Israel, those who belong to God. See, I often hear people say today, well, we're all children of God. No, we're not. We're all created by God, but we're not all children of God. Just as the Apostle Paul said, not all Israelites are of Israel. Why? Because being born of an ethnicity or of a nationality doesn't make you belong to God. Faith in Jesus Christ makes you belong to God. 
or faith in God from, from an Old Testament perspective that the Messiah was coming, that same saving faith made them part of God's people. And so this vision of this woman that John has here is of redeemed Israel. You say, well, are we sure of that? Well, we, we really are sure of that because what have we already seen? God marked out 144,000 Jews, 12,000 out of each tribe that are his. Two witnesses and, and countless others that aren't mentioned here who hear the preaching of the 144,000, hear the preaching of the witnesses, and they put their faith in Jesus, and now they're part of God's people. They're part of that Israel that is redeemed, that remnant of Jews that will be saved out of the tribulation. So John sees in this vision redeemed Israel, God's people, those who were saved, and he sees this woman. Now, she's great with child, and, and we know as we read a little further, I'll give you a little heads up, the child is, is Jesus, okay, the male child. But the Savior that's going to come through Israel, because Jesus was born of the Jews, of the lineage of David, from the tribe of Judah, because of that, listen, because of that, Satan is going to do and has done everything that he can do to resist the plan of God, which includes resisting Israel, which includes resisting the woman, the nation of Israel. And so when uh, John says here that this woman is in great pain, uh, in distress, basically, well, we know that analogy because uh, every woman here who's, who's given birth to a child knows the pain of that and then the joy of having the child after the pain. And so what he does here is he describes this woman being in great distress because Satan is against her. Listen to this very carefully. No nation in the history of the world, no group of people in the history of the world have been persecuted like Israel has been persecuted. No nation. No nation in the world, no group of people have suffered like the nation of Israel has suffered. That's no mistake. That's no accident. That's no coincidence because right here John said uh, she's in great pain. Why? Because of the child. Because Jesus is part of God's plan. Now listen, who, who brings all that pain? And who is the one who's resisting God's plan? It's Satan. And John describes him in verses 3 and 4. Now this is probably one of the most interesting descriptions of Satan in all the Bible. Look at it, verses 3 and 4. John said, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems, with crowns on his head. Verse 4, his tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, notice this, who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. Man, that's historically accurate, isn't it? That's exactly what happened. Now, now listen to what John's saying here. He describes, he describes Satan in some interesting terms. As a matter of fact, as best I know, this is the only place in the Bible where Satan is described as a dragon. Now, he's described in other places as a serpent, you know, and those kinds of things. But here he's described as a, as a great red dragon. Now, I said just a moment ago that Satan, uh, Satan is a created being. In fact, he used to be an angel. When you study the Bible, he was created by God, and, and the Bible says he was a covering cherub. He had a place of service around the throne of God. In fact, let me, let me read the description to you in Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning of verse 14. Uh, God's talking here about an earthly king, but the description moves quickly from a human being to we know that it's speaking of Satan. Listen to what he says. He says of Satan, you were the anointed cherub who covers. Man, a lot of theology, a lot of books have been written about that. What did Satan do? What was his job? Well, right here he was a covering 
uh, a cherub, an anointed of God, a covering cherub. Some believe that, that he had the highest place among the angels to, over the throne of God, that he was created. Listen, the Bible describes Satan as in terms of, he, Satan's not running around with a pitchfork and a rubber suit with horns, okay? Just, yeah, that's not how he's looked. Matter of fact, the Bible describes Satan as a beautifully created creature. He has great beauty, wisdom, and power. And God created him that way to serve as this cherub, this covering cherub in heaven. God said, I established you, Ezekiel 28, 14. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. Listen to what God says here. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you, until an imperfection was found in you, until sin was found in you. Why was that sin found in him? Look at verse 16. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, uh, and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. Listen to verse 17 of Ezekiel 28. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they might gaze at you. What, what, the description there and what happened is Satan, in all of his beauty and his wisdom and his place in heaven, pride came into his heart. And he wanted to be like God. He wanted to receive the same adoration and glory as God. And so God uh, threw him out of heaven. God threw him, removed him from his place of service and cast him to heaven. Did you know the Bible says Satan is the prince of this world right now. God allows him to rule over things in the world. In fact, we could look at human history. We could spend the rest of the morning seeing and, and comparing how, how nations and, 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 and empires have been moved by Satan to do his bidding, to destroy and to hurt and to try to stop the, the plan of God. Satan is that one who's behind all of that. Now, notice the description here. Very interesting. Fiery red dragon. Well, red certainly speaks to his destructiveness, to the shedding of blood. The Bible says two things are predominantly true about Satan, other than his wisdom and his beauty and all that stuff. And by the way, by the way, you and I are no, no match for Satan, okay? We, we can't stand up to him. But the one whom we stand in has already defeated him. That's how we win, okay? Satan is very powerful. Satan's very smart. Okay? He's way smarter than us. Satan's been at this since creation. He's got our number. Okay? There's, no, there's no getting around him, no fooling him. He'll eat your lunch every day. But the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit gives us power to be victorious. Listen to how God describes him here. Number one, fiery red. It says two things of Satan in the Bible. Number one, he's a murderer. He's a murderer. It, it, Jesus said in John 8, 44, speaking to the to the the hypocritical, lost religious leaders, he said this, you are of your father the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. Listen, he was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. Jesus looked at the religious leaders of Israel and said, you just like your father Satan, murderer from the beginning, you don't have any truth in you because there's no truth in him. Later on in John 10, 10, Jesus said, the thief comes but to kill, steal, and destroy. Satan's a murderer and he's a liar. And, and John describes him here in this vision as fiery red, the one who would take life. But now let's talk about these seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. Again, if you are uh, of a mind to do 
a lot of research to try to figure these things out, there is uh, a lot of ink and a lot of paper written on those, on those things about the description here. Let me give you a, a personal perspective on biblical interpretation. You don't have to make it complicated. You don't have to make it hard. That doesn't mean it's simple. You just don't have to make it hard. When I, when I read the Bible and I think about what's being said and how it's being described, I think, what else have I seen in the Bible that compares to that? And that's, how, that's where I begin. And with that in mind, let me, let me give you what I believe are the correct descriptions of, of this vision that John sees of Satan with seven heads, ten horns, and seven crowns. And that's some creature, isn't it? This great big red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns. Number one, I believe the heads, the seven heads, correspond very nicely to what Daniel revealed in Daniel uh, 7 and through other prophetic books, again, going back to the Bible, of seven prominent nations that have moved human history to this place. Okay, listen to me. Egypt, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and then the Antichrist. Now, you say, well, I don't like that interpretation. Okay, you get one for yourself then. All right. But listen, it fits. You say, well, why is it connected to Satan? Because Satan, listen, Satan has used every one of those empires, every one of those nations, right up to what he's going to do with Antichrist to fight against God and to fight against God's purpose. So I believe those heads represent those nations. You say, well, then what do the ten horns mean? Throughout the Bible, everywhere you see horns spoken of, it means power. It means, it means power. It means the ability to rule. There are ten kings. When we study the tribulation, there are ten kings that are going to make up the, the kingdom of Antichrist. Okay, And, of course, Antichrist will rule over them, and he's going to try to have world dominion. And seven crowns, well, crowns always speak to uh, authority and rulership. Satan, here's one thing you can know about Satan that the Bible teaches us. He is the great usurper of all times. He, he's a copycat. Whatever has been said true of Jesus, he tries to do that. He tries to rule. He tries to do what Jesus has done and what Jesus is going to do. Why? Because he wants to be like God. And so this description of Satan fits all of those parameters that we find biblically. Now, I'll tell you, I've, I've studied this a long time. And there are people who go, well, these seven things mean the seven mountains around Rome. And okay, all right, fine. If that's what you want to say, good. But that's not right, okay? This is not right. Listen, it needs to fit biblically. You understand what I'm saying? It needs to fit with the rest of Scripture. Again, I can't say this enough about, about metaphors and symbolism because we get in so much trouble when we do this. It's not a free pass just to make stuff up. It's not a free pass just to, just to go make... Listen, do you understand this? When God the Holy Spirit moved John to write this stuff down. And when John had his vision and through the entire scriptures, everything the Holy Spirit had these men write in this book has unity, unity, not diversity. And so everything in there is a continual one revelation of God to us to know what he's doing. So it's got to fit. It's got to be in there. Now, let's deal with this drew one third of the stars with him with his tail. You see that part? Verse 4, 4a. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Well, this is, if you've ever heard uh, someone say, well, when Satan rebelled against God, he took a third of the angels with him. That's where they get this from, okay? And I believe that's what it means. 
that when Satan rebelled against God, and sometime in, in, in history past, before creation, God had created the heavens and the universe and, and created the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim and everything's heaven's worse than God and Satan decides to rebel and God casts him out of heaven. Apparently, listen, apparently there was a time in history past when the angels had a choice because a third of them decided to, to side with Satan. Now somebody's asked before, how many angels are there? I don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Bible says there's a lot of them, though. Many. In fact, we already read in Revelation that there's a whole lot of demons because those angels who rebelled with Satan and were cast out of heaven became demons. And we already know that all the demons aren't loose, right? They're locked up in the abyss waiting for judgment day and that some of them are going to be released during the tribulation as part of the punishment on the people who are following Antichrist. So right now today, as we're here this morning, right now, there are multitudes of demons locked up in the abyss, and I'm thankful for that. God, just keep them locked up there till we go to heaven. But there are demons, there are fallen angels that, that are in the world doing Satan's bidding, moving world leaders to make bad decisions, moving governments to choose sinful things instead of righteous things. Because when we read the Bible, you read the book of Daniel, you find out that when the angel Gabriel is going to come talk to Daniel, he tells Daniel, he said, man, I got held up. What do you mean you got held up? You're an angel. Well, I was withstood. I mean, the evil one didn't want me to come give you this message because it's the word of God. And Michael had to come and fight with him so that I could come give you the message. And after I give you the message, I'm going to go back and help Michael and we're going to fight against the wicked ones. Do you understand that when God peels back the curtain a little bit, there's a serious spiritual war going on. I mean, all over the place. There's angels restraining wickedness. And the Bible says the Holy Spirit is in the world today. Restraining wickedness is not as bad as it could be. So the description here of Satan drawing away a third of the angels or the demons and his army, if you will, his, his uh, minions who do his bidding, which, listen, will reach its apex in the tribulation, will reach its its worst time in the tribulation. Now it says here he wants to destroy the child. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. She bore, now notice this. Here's how we know who it is. She bore a male child, listen, who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. Well, that can only be one person there, because Jesus is the only one going to rule the world with a rod of iron. So, so again, it supports altogether that this woman represents Israel, and that this male child represents Jesus. And what is Satan's plan? He wants to stop God's plan. He wants to hinder it. He wants to mess it up. What is God's plan? Let me give you four things that, that probably encompass all of God's plan of what he's doing in the world. Number one, listen, number one, God wants to save lost people. From before time began, before the world was created, God knew we would need a Savior, and Jesus was the one to come. Revelation 13, 8 said, Jesus is the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. So God's plan means he wants to redeem people. God wants to save you today. If you're here watching online, watching live, watching the video later, and you've never come to Jesus confessing your sin, asking him to forgive you, God wants to save you. He wants to save you. That's part of his plan. All of this stuff he's doing is so you can be saved. 
so you can be forgiven of sin, have eternal life. Listen, God wants to spend eternity with you. He wants you to spend eternity with him. God wants, is this not an amazing thing? That God would love me so much, he wants I'm the last person to be worthy of having fellowship with God. I suspect you're not worthy either. Just a guess. But listen, God loves us so much, that's part of his plan. He wants us to spend time with him. He wants us to be with him, have a restored relationship with him, fellowship with him. That's God's plan. Number two, in God's plan, the Bible tells us, he set a nation aside that's his, Israel. His. It's the apple of his eye. He loves Israel. He made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's going to fulfill them. And for all of eternity in the kingdom of Christ, Israel is going to be a prominent nation among, among his, his redeemed. So God's setting apart a nation, the Messiah, part of his plan. Jesus, the Savior, came through the lineage of David, born of the tribe of Judah. I have actually had people, I've read things and had people say something, I wonder, I wonder what ethnicity Jesus was. And I'm like, what? Uh, he's Hebrew, yeah. Matter of fact, I can tell you he's of the line of David, and he was born of the tribe of Judah. So we know exactly where Jesus came from, earthly, in his earthly lineage. So God's in his plan. He wants to redeem us. He's setting aside a nation for himself. And then thirdly in God's plan was to build a church. Now listen to me. This is another theological point. There are some people who like to, who like to say that the church has replaced Israel. And that a lot of times when God's talking later in the New Testament about Israel, he's talking about church, and that's not true. That's, that's error, okay? That's wrong. Listen, Israel is Israel, and the church is the church. The two, the two are mutually exclusive from that perspective. Now, in the church age, which we live in right now, from Pentecost until the rapture, Jews are being saved who are part of the church. Everybody follow me? Okay. Now, when the church is raptured and the Jews turn to Jesus and say, that's our Messiah, we messed up the first time, they're going to be saved, but they're going to be part of the redeemed Israel that we just looked at a moment ago, okay? The church and Israel are two different things. God, in this dispensation, in this age, is calling out a bride for his son Jesus, and the bride is the church, okay? Different entities, all right? And then finally, finally, the fourth part of God's plan, okay, redeem people, all right, he's going he's gonna to make a nation for himself, Israel, which he already has. He's going to preserve them, the church. And then finally, the kingdom of his son, Jesus, is going to rule forever and forever and forever. He's going to sit on the throne. We're going to worship him. We're going to serve him. And it's going to be glorious. God's plan. Now, listen, Satan does not want that to happen. Now, And, I, and I'm going to run out of time, but don't you listen to me. Satan does not want that to happen. Listen, let me give you a, a list very quickly of examples of how Satan has tried to stop God's plan from, from the time Adam was created, okay? Listen, in the Garden of Eden, God created Adam, breathed into him the breath of life, and here's a man, a human being, uh, perfect, sinless, perfect fellowship with God. It says that, that Adam could walk with God in the cool of the day. Can you only imagine with human capacity, unhindered by sin, unclouded by sin to be able to ask God questions. God, how did you do that? And how was it, God, how was it when you did this? And, and man, just to be able to, unfettered, 
by, by human frailty to talk with God. Adam had that, okay? And then, and then God made a woman for him. God said, Adam, it's not good for you to be alone. You need a helpmate, one who will complete you and help you be all that I created you to be. So I'm going to make a woman so the two of you can, listen, can complement one another. And then the two of you can serve me together in, 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 just as I designed it. By the way, that's how marriage ought to be today. That's another message. Okay. Now listen, what does Satan do? Because Satan said, man, if I don't do something here, this thing, this thing will go, it'll, it'll, i got to mess this up. So he comes, you know, takes on the form of the servant, deceives the woman. The Bible says she's deceived, but Adam wasn't deceived. Adam chose to disobey God, so man fell into sin. So, so Satan, you know, him and the demons are high-fiving. Man, we messed that all up. Look at them. They're fools. They thought they were going to get wisdom, and now they're, now they're in sin. And then think of, the, think of the antediluvian civilization, those people before the flood. Oh, by the way, Satan moved Cain to kill his brother, Abel. So he's a murderer from the beginning. And then in that time before the flood, Satan, who, who do you think was behind all the wickedness that, that one day God looks down from heaven and goes, man, the world's become so wicked. I, I, if I don't do something, there'll be nobody left to saved. Who did that? Satan. What was Satan trying to do? He was trying to, he, listen, Satan was trying to so corrupt the human seed that Jesus couldn't be born, that a Savior couldn't come. But God's greater than that, isn't he? He just, he just got Noah and said, hey, man, build a boat. Build a boat? Yeah, build a big one. Because you can put a bunch of animals and stuff on there, and I'm going to save humanity. You know the story. So, so God destroys the world. What about after the flood? What about after the flood? That first generation after the flood, you got Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah. They all know God. Everything must have been good, man. Man, God's great. He saved us through the flood. Got animals. But as soon as the world began to populate again, what happened? Satan comes in, wickedness, people trying to build their own kingdoms and, and the Tower of Babel. And, and what's all that about? Rebellion against God? Rebellion against God. So what does God do? Confuse their languages, scatter them all over the place? There's been this cosmic war going on between Satan and God and Satan trying to mess up what God's doing. And then we get, to, we, we, we get, we get Israel down in Egypt, you know, the Joseph story and the whole deal. They get down there. And they're guests in Egypt until a pharaoh arises who don't know, uh, doesn't know Joseph. And then, then they become slaves. And for 400 years, they're in bondage. And God sends Moses and leads them out. And that generation was a piece of work, wasn't it? Man, they're mad at everybody. They don't like Moses. They don't, they don't you know, not enough food. Don't like the water, whatever. So God, who's behind all that? Satan? Satan? So, so God moves them over to the land. And by the way, in Egypt, what did Pharaoh do? Infanticide? You know, we'll just kill all the babies. Who's behind that, Satan? Who's behind abortion today, Satan? Who's behind all the wickedness today, Satan? Who's behind, listen, who's behind men and women hating one another because of the color of their skin, Satan? Who's behind people hating one another because of where they come from and what they do, Satan? Satan's still at work today. He's still doing the same thing. It's sin. Did it in Egypt. Listen, get to the period of the judges. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Who's behind that? Satan. Why? Because he wants to mess up God's plan. David, greatest king in Israel. God raised him up. Going to start a lineage. It's from David, from his lineage, that Jesus will be born. What does Satan do? He moves Saul to try to kill him. What's he doing? Trying to cut off the lineage of Jesus Christ? Let's fast forward. The Persians, the study that Pastor Bill's in at Esther. What did Haman want to do? Let's kill all the Jews. That's a good idea. 
Why not even not somebody else? Oh, we'll just, just kill all the Jews. We don't like them. So God intervenes again, and, and Haman's unsuccessful. Then the birth of Jesus comes. Satan has tried all these centuries to stop God's plan. Jesus, born in Bethlehem. Exactly. God's so good. Satan wants to stop the plan, and God goes, hey, not only is he going to be born, but I'll tell you exactly where he's going to be born, and I'll tell you when. And you still can't stop it. So God gives the prophecy, born in Bethlehem, you know, Ephratah, and, and the Virgin Mary, and Jesus is born, and Herod finds out he's born, and Herod wants to kill him, tells the wise men, listen, Satan has been trying his hardest through all of human history to stop God's plan. How about a couple of, of more modern stories? God protecting his people, and what does Satan do? He raises up a Hitler. He says, hey, you know, the Jews are the problem in the whole world. Where does that come from, Satan? So why don't we just exterminate them, kill six million men and women, boys and girls, a wicked, heinous man, no doubt demon-possessed. Who's behind that stuff? The red dragon with the heads and the crowns who wants to be like God, who fights against, what's, against all that God is doing. And it'll reach its apex in the tribulation. Let me close with this. Look at verses 5 and 6. God's plan, listen to me, God's plan is unaltered. God's plan cannot be stopped. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. Now listen to verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she was, uh, has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. In the tribulation, uh, Satan is going to try to destroy Israel one more time because see, he knows the kingdom of Christ is coming at the end of the tribulation. So his thinking is, if I can kill all the Jews, there'll be no kingdom for him to rule over because Israel is the nation from where he will rule. So Antichrist will be moved by Satan to once again take his armies, the largest army in the world man's ever known, to come against Israel to wipe them out. And God, listen to me, God will supernaturally protect a remnant of Jews just like he did all throughout history, all throughout history. God will supernaturally intervene. Antichrist will not be able to destroy Israel. And then the Antichrist, before he knows it, Jesus is going to show up. Eastern sky is going to split open. Jesus is going to come with the armies of heaven, speak, and they're all going to be destroyed. Let me close with this. This parenthetical is full of detailed information about what God's doing and about how he's doing it in the tribulation and even now. Here's the greatest thing you need to understand from our perspective today. We live in what the Bible calls an, a day of grace, the church age. As far as I'm concerned, reading history and reading the Bible, this is the greatest time to live as a human being in the age of grace. Because God's extending grace to every tongue and tribe, every nation, every person, Gentiles, Jews alike, if you want to be saved, you want to be forgiven of your sin, you want to have eternal life, it's available. You come to Jesus. Confess your sin with a repentant heart. Ask Jesus to forgive you. He'll save you today. You say, what do I have to do? Have faith. What do I have to do? Confess your sin. No, what do I have to do? Well, you have to do nothing. You, you absolutely can't do anything. We are 
helplessly and hopelessly lost in our sin. But Jesus, part of God's plan, came and died on a cross, buried, rose again the third day, so that we could be saved. If you're watching online, I pray that you'll accept Christ today. If you're here in the auditorium, I pray that you'll accept Christ today if you're not sure you're saved. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for revealing these things uh, about your plan and about history and what's going to happen in the tribulation. And God, we look forward to the fulfillment of these prophecies. God, we look forward to the coming of Christ, the rapture of his church. We look forward to the kingdom of our Lord as he rules in righteousness and justice. Lord, the world needs you. There may be somebody here right now watching online or in this space or, or will watch this video later, Lord, and they need you right now. And I pray, God, that you would touch their heart, that they would just bow their head right now and say, God, I am sorry for my sin, and I, I ask you to save me, forgive me. Come into my heart. Be my Lord today, God. I bow before you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I'll be glad to pray with you or help you. Come on the first verse.